right, so today we resume our study of Genesis. By continuing in chapter 2, last week we finished looking at the, the opening verses of this book, and today we get to what some have erroneously considered to be a second creation account, um, a con- what they perceive to be a contradictory creation account, but it's not, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But for now, I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 2 as we read verses 4 through 17. Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the living God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for how you care for us. Lord, grant that we would with humility approach your word, seeking to be fed by it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as I said a few minutes ago, we we have moved on from the first week of creation 
and now we are in the second chapter of the book, and some people erroneously think that what we've just read, these verses, that they constitute a, a second and contradictory creation account, and, and that's not the case. Uh, it, it's important to remember that when we look at the book of Genesis, you bear in mind the structure of the book, okay? If you recall, we said that the book of Genesis is centered around 10 toledotes. These, that's the Hebrew word that is translated, these are the generations of. And you see that, 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 that as, a, as a marker 10 times in the book. There are 10 stories, 10 chapters, if you want to call it, in the book of Genesis. Five of these toledotes, five of these sections are prior to chapter 12, so 1 through 11. Five of them are 12 to 50. So the book splits 1 to 11, 12 to 50. The book is composed of toledotes that begin by, by speaking of the thing that is essentially the fount and everything that flows during that section sort of shows what comes from that. So that's why in the beginning of verse 4, it says this is the generations of the heavens and the earth. So it commences what came from the earth. Well, Adam and Eve, first of all, and the animal, all that stuff. So this story goes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of chapter 4. It's important to recall that in this Toledot, what is being laid out for us is what went wrong. The reason chapter 2 is in here is to remind us it sets the stage for chapter 3, which explains why everything that went wrong went wrong. And then chapter 4 is part of that same section because it shows how the catastrophe wrought by Adam and Eve in chapter 3, it wasn't limited to them, how it spreads out. Remember, Genesis was written to the newly freed, the newly constituted nation of Israel. This book was most likely, most almost certainly written during the 40 years of wandering. And as they're wandering, they're ex they've experienced their own fallenness. They've experienced the handiwork of God. They've heard the creation accounts of Egypt. That's what they grew up with. They're familiar with the stories from the Canaanites around them. And so Moses is setting the record straight through his vantage point and access as a prophet of God. He reveals to them the true story of origins. And so this chapter right here, though, in the, in the scheme of the Toledot, chapter 2 is there to set the stage for why chapter 3 is so heinous. But in the vantage point of creation, chapter 2 offers us a slightly different perspective. Chapter 1, as we recall from last week, is all about explaining to us the majesty and the grandeur of God that is on display in the orderly creation of the universe. Chapter 1, verse 1 lays out that before anything was, God is. And from that mysteriously awesome 
perspective, God creates all that is. And it culminates, it climaxes in the creation and consecration of the seventh day. In the vantage point of the creation of the universe, we saw that the creation of man on the sixth day was the apex of creation. We were the crowning jewel on the creation that God has made. Now, here in the second chapter, it's a different perspective. You see, we're not looking at a, at, at a contradictory account. No, we're looking at God zooming in. And instead of man being the apex of a broad creation of the universe, now it's zoomed in and we get to see the creation of man as the focus of creation. The creation of mankind is what is in focus here. We don't have simply another creation account. Indeed, almost nothing of what is created in the first chapter is even mentioned again here. Just, just a few things, and those have caused great confusion, and I hope we can clear that up. But the reason it is important to have Moses show the creation of man in two different lights, first as the apex of creation, and then second as the focus of creation, is the dehumanizing effect of heathenism. The Egyptians, where they grew up in, the, the, the paganism of the ancient Near East, indeed, the, the number one thing that happens when you re reject the ordered cosmos of the truth is that man is reduced to an almost animal-like state. And we inflict barbarism on each other. We inflict barbarism on the world. And indeed, we make a mockery out of God and reduce him to a created thing. That's what Genesis 1 tells us all about. When you reject the truth, you embrace a lie. And that has catastrophic consequences for our understanding of God and our understanding of each other and the world around us, you see disorder in every sphere of existence. And so the burden of Moses right here in chapter 2, in, in these first verses of chapter 2, is to stress the utter uniqueness of mankind. That it's not just that we're the apex of creation, we are the apple in the eye of God as he considers creation. I know we talked about this before, but, but especially in our age where we are told that we're nothing, we're just atoms. No, you're special. You are unique in this world. You, you are precious and you are valuable. And you, you have moral accountability because of your status. So let's look. In this passage, in the remainder of our time, we're going to look at five ways, five ways that this passage focuses 
on the fact that God relates uniquely to man as the, as, as the center of his creation. Okay? Of all that God has made, I know that if you've probably read or heard the news, you know, the military's reporting all these UFO sightings out and around, whatever. If, if there's extraterrestrial life out there, guess what? Mankind is still the center of creation. Okay? And the fate of whatever planet they're from, if there's such a thing, is tied up in the fate of this planet. Because this planet is the home of humanity, which is the apple of God's eye, the image of God. Okay? So don't, don't, be, don't be shaken, don't be stirred by any of that. You, you, as insignificant as you may think you are, are the apple in God's eye. The center and focus of his intent for this planet. All right? And there are five ways that the Bible wants to convey this in this passage. First, and most amazingly, and, and I, I think it gives a great slap in the face to the, to the view that says that man is a curse and a plague and that the world is just better off if, if we leave things alone. No, look at verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, Okay, so stop right there. Is this, oh, oh no, it says nothing had happened. Well, is, doesn't, that, doesn't that reject or doesn't that contradict the, the chapter one where it says God made all this stuff on day four, two days before man, and here it says this wasn't here yet. Whoa, whoa chill. Let not your heart be troubled. What does it say here? It says it had not sprung up. For, let me give some reasons, okay? The thing itself, what he's talking about here, had as, as, a, as a thing had been, had been created. It just hadn't sprung up. It was still in the ground in its seed form. But the thing itself, as a seed, was made. I don't care how much you tend something and how much water you put on something. If the seed isn't there, something doesn't grow from nothing. So the something was made. But specifically, what he's talking about here, he uses a word that is not, for, for, for Bush, that is not in chapter 1. Chapter 1 refers to the creation of vegetative life in the broadest categorical sense. Here, he's using terms that matter more to people who are agrarian and trying to survive. You know, people who are just trying to survive aren't so worried about the grand vistas of, of, of the mountain ranges, nor do they care about the Amazon rainforest. What do they care about? They care about wheat. They care about corn. They care about stuff they can eat, right? And these, these two terms here are used almost exclusively in the Old Testament for cultivated type stuff. The stuff that, that we really need to use to, to thrive and to, to, to eat. It's not talking about the rainforests and the, and, 
and, and all that stuff. Here it's talking about the cultivated stuff that really depends on people. You, you want to know a, a little secret? There's a lot of plant life in the world that doesn't really flourish or thrive. Unless a lot of hard work is put into making it thrive. Try growing a garden. Some of you are, are, have such a green thumb that you make it happen. Others of us have tried for years, and, and we just seem to kill whatever we touch. There, there's a lot of things out there that don't flourish in the wild apart from the intentional activity of mankind to make it so. And that's not accidental. As we see here, this stuff, this stuff had not yet sprung up. Why had it not sprung up? Well, there, there's two reasons. First, God hadn't sent rain. Now, again, remember that we're talking about a pre-fall environment. So when we talk about natural providence, normal providence, um, things seem to have been different prior to the flood. We don't know if there was never rain until the flood, or is it just in this first week there hadn't been? We don't know, but at least the idea is opened here for the possibility that it just simply didn't rain at the time, and that there was a different earth-watering mechanism in place. But whatever, providentially, God had not brought about the thing that is needed, but second of all, and this is where we see the necessity of mankind. It says there was no man to work the ground. So right here we see for all the world's potential to be realized, it takes the activity of humanity. For the world to flourish and thrive the way God intends, people have to get their hands and their feet, their knees, their elbows dirty. When God created the world, he didn't create it in such a way that all Adam had to do was lounge around in a toga, plucking fruit and eating it, lounging around all day. No, he had to work. Even from the beginning, you, brothers and sisters, are essential to this world's prosperity. The world, let me, let me, really, let me really just dash uh, environmentalism. The world is not better if we simply leave a place alone. It takes mankind to bring it and form it just as God formed us. Yes, in a fallen world, humans do horrible things, and, and we have done bad things to the world. But that doesn't undermine the principle that the world to flourish requires the activity of people. Okay? So that is one way in which you are unique. The world is depending on you. The cosmos that God has made depends upon your activity, and I'm not just talking about taking care of plants. Well, that's pretty important. But the stuff we do with the stuff of this created order, it makes life thrive and flourish. 
In verse 7, we see the second thing about this passage that tells us that we are the center of God's creative focus. And that is we are the object of his craftsmanship. In verse 7, it says the Lord forms the man of the dust of the ground. The word form is what a pottery does. He literally shapes the man together from the dust. He gets down on his hands and knees, so to speak. And almost like he makes a mud pie in the shape of a person. Essentially. Nothing else gets God's special attention that way. <clears throat> it is true that God cares about all of his creation. It is true. He does. But there's nothing in all of creation that gets God's special handiwork involved as in the creation of the, the first people. But it's not just the first people. When David reminds us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that he, he knits us together in our mother's womb, God is continuing his personal, intimate involvement in every person's construction. It's beautiful. God made no mistakes. Coupled with the creation ordinance, which we will talk about creation ordinances next week because they're really super important. But coupled with the creation ordinance to be fruitful, to fill the earth, and coupled with the fact that God is the author of life, we should see that every single human life is precious. Even when a human life is formed under circumstances that are contrary to the expressed will of God, that human life is precious and should be received and celebrated. And someone who laments having children the burden they have, sh frankly, should be rebuked because it was God who made that child. It was God who made you. You are the object of God's creative focus. But then he does something. He doesn't just form him from dust. What does the very next clause say? It says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Oh, that's awesome. Imagine God leaning over this mud pie, breathing, and the efficacious breath of God turns mud into bone, muscle, tendon, sinew, organs, blood, fluid, skin, hair, and the man takes his first breath. That is awesome. And it's such a powerful action of God that, that our life is directly derived from God. Did you know that? You live and are animated by the fact that God has breathed into the body that is made. 
And it's interesting to me that so important is this, that in John chapter 20, when Jesus has been raised from the dead, what does he tell his disciples? He says, peace be with you. Even as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And then what does he do? What does he do? He breathes on them and says, what? Receive the Holy Spirit. You see, the breath of God is powerful. And our physical life and our spiritual life are utterly dependent upon being breathed upon and being the recipient of the divine spirit. Third, in this passage we see the emphasis of man as a special creation, the very center of God's creative intent by the fact that we are blessed with a personal relationship with God. We have even to this day the fact that humankind constitutionally is capable of relating to their creator. They may not with their sinful will, but constitutionally they can. Where do we see this? All throughout this passage. I want you to compare. It's, it's, everyone notes it. In chapter 1, God is always referred to simply with the word Elohim. Read it. In the, in the, even in English, God said, God, 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 God. That's how God is referred to. God, 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 God. The whole time. Elohim is the perfect word to use when you want to describe a, describe a transcendent thing that is majestic. But beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, throughout this narrative, how is God referred to? The Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. In Hebrew, that's Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh Elohim. Now, this is super important because for the most part, God's people don't refer to him like this until the burning bush. When God reveals his name as Yahweh. And the name of the Lord becomes synonymous, not just in terms of meaning, but in terms of connotation with the covenant. The relationship, the bond between God and his people, that they are privileged to know his name. And throughout this entire narrative, the Lord is introduced and is presented to Adam and to Eve as Yahweh Elohim. He is the covenant God in relationship to them. So we see the intent before the fall. Man was in a relationship, a covenantal loving relationship. They were the friends of God. No other creature was created to relate to God in such a way. Then in verses 4, 8 through 14, we see the privilege of paradise as the environment of man. Now it talks about the, the to the east 
To the east of what? To the east of us? To the, to the east of where they were when they wrote the book. I mean, that's the vantage point, okay? So to the east of where they were. Um, one of the difficulties we have with identifying these rivers and these places is, quite frankly, he's describing something that took place and was created prior to a flood that destroyed the entire region. And we have things that exist now that are subsequent to having been destroyed and reworked. So we can identify two rivers that bear the name, but are they the same rivers or were they just renamed after, after upon being rediscovered? Um, it's the same when, when, when colonists came over from old Europe, they would rename places after their old place. Uh, we don't know for sure. For example, it says the, it refers to the region of Cush. Well, in most of biblical history, Cush is identified as Ethiopia, way down here. But, but where the, where the modern-day Tigris and the modern-day Euphrates originate is in the mountains of eastern Turkey. I mean, that, that's a long ways apart. Okay, so we don't really know where the ancient locale was, but here's the point. There was this great river that fed this garden that God created. And this great river branched off into four other rivers, three of which were so utterly unknown to the people that he explains them. The only one that Moses doesn't explain to the people is the Euphrates. So at least three of the rivers is unknown to even those people. But he highlights not only the lushness of, the, of what has been made, but the abundance of water. Now think about this. They, they are wandering around the desert. They stop at oases wherever they find them. But these people acutely understand the strategic and practical value of abundant water. And it's there in spades. And there's gold and all these precious resources there. Now, another, another little commentary is Gold typically isn't just lying around on the surface of the ground where you walk and pick it up. I mean, sometimes it is. Typically, you got a mine for it. The Lord has invested the earth with resources that require us to bring it out. Okay? So, stop. D don't, don't think for a minute that mining operations are bad. The Lord has put into the ground resources that are valuable, that are useful, but they must be brought out. But that's what he's trying to convey here, Moses is, that this garden that's been created, so the world is as it is, there's a special garden that's been created, it is lush, it's filled with, with, with things that are pleasing to the eye, that are tasty, delectable, they're great. There's lots of resources, there's lots of water. It's just, a, it's just an ideal place to call home. Nothing else received such special care in the construction of its abode. The Lord God was gifting the first people, our first parents, with everything they needed to accomplish the task at hand. We are special. 
Lastly, man was given prerogatives and perimeters. Or to say it another way, we were created with and under authority. We are morally responsible agents who will answer to God. Okay, we see this in verses 15 to 17, and, and we're going to go into this a little bit more next week because this is the covenant of works. But for right now, what I want to point out is that the people, Adam, is placed here in the garden. So God constructs the garden. He constructs the man. He puts the man in the garden to work it and to keep it. And he says, in the course of Whatever else he's doing, you may eat of anything. So there's great freedom here, right? He's already been told to, to, to work things. To, so, so whatever goes into making the potential of the earth become realized, all that he has freedom to do when it comes to the consumption of food, he's free to pick whatever. He has great freedom. But he has a constraint. But of this one tree... You shall not eat. For on the day you do it, you'll surely die. So we see right here prerogatives and parameters. Nothing else is vested with authority to make real decisions, freedom to make real selections. And nothing else is accountable to God to obey. Nothing else does God. To, there's nothing else to which God gives a command that he then expects obedience for which there will be accountability. Now, wrapping all these five things together, brothers and sisters, I hope you see, we're not just primates that are hairless. We're not just another organism of the earth. No, we are special. We have great potential. We have great power. We have great abilities. We have great graces. Each person in here, you have been made in the image of God and granted a role in the governance of this world. You are valuable okay and you will give an account because of that as they say to whom much is given much is required and the beauty is that this original picture is not just pie in the sky foregone no this is a glimpse of what shall be to come when Christ restores all things, we will have the pristine environment again. And we will again relate to our creator, our world, each other, and ourselves. Free from the consequences and the effects of sin. But until then, brothers and sisters, never, ever forget that we are special and unique in God's sight. Let us pray.